Right on, guys. If you have a Bible uh, or a smartphone with a Bible, turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God's Word. And this is, uh, we find this in the Old Testament. There's a, it, it's a sense of uh, respect and even a form of worship in the Old Testament. They would stand up when they read the Word together as the congregation. Psalm 8. We're going to read the whole thing here. This is King David who, who wrote this, this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This is a different avenger than what you're thinking. I knew, I knew. <laughs> when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God of grace, I pray you would speak to us this morning, of what it means to stand beneath your creation, beneath your heavens, and, and on the earth that you've created, and look up to you and see your glory and see your might. I pray that that, that would be how we leave this place this morning, um, empowered as well as in awe of, of beholding who you are and, and your might. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. So this is a psalm, a poem, an ancient Hebrew poem written by King David. And he has a very strong conviction, and you, you sense it in the psalm, that uh, earth creation is not an accident. Uh, that, that as he looks out at the night sky, as he walks under the stars, he wa walks under the, the bright sun during the day, he takes in the creatures as they wander around him that, that live in the ocean. He is extremely humbled and rejoiced. And even as I read it, I said, I said, what is man that you're mindful? And I heard some of you go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, and, and that's what David's walking through. He, he's humbled by all. Is someone sneaking up on me? Okay. <laughs> And it's not a God who's somewhere way out there, but it's a God who is, is close and walks with him. That's the sense we get. You know why? Because you don't write a poem to someone who's not going to receive it. So he's writing this because he wants God to hear from his heart. That's who we write <laughs> poems to. And he frames his poem with these, these bookends. He says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, is he just, be, is he just reiterating the same thing? No. For those of you who don't know, and if you've been around for a while, I've brought this up a few times, and it's important in how we read, especially the Psalms, because this comes up a lot, is that when you see the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is translating the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. And so he, he frames this, this beautiful poem of God's creation and might and glory with these two things. Yahweh means God is close, so close he could breathe on you. He is the eternal God who steps into the, his own creation. The second word, Lord, means Lord, the, the Lord that we would submit to, the Lord that we would call our King. You are my Lord. So he's proclaiming this song not to a far off, unreciprocating God, but one who is well established 
in the work of his creation and who, who shows love and honor to those he created. And that is how you and I, if we believe in the God of the Bible, that's, that's the, the universe that we see ourselves living in. And that's a, wonderful, that's a wonderful universe to live in with that kind of understanding. To, to, to take it in and to be blown away by its beauty, its intricacy of, of creation, and then respond. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been coming and we've been reflecting, and this makes it easier that it wasn't pouring this morning. That as, as we drove in this morning and we could actually see the mountains, we were able to, to glory in God's creation. That's what David is doing. And that is what we, are, we continue to do when we worship, and that's why we gather together to worship. And actually, our view of God becomes greater and greater as we experience worship together. And if we're wondering how we respond, we, we look at the psalmist. All worship is a response to God's revelation of himself. You ever think about that? All of worship is a response to God's revelation of himself. If we're not reflecting on, God's, on how God has related himself to us through Scripture, through Christ, in our own lives, through, through, through creation then what are we worshiping about? <laughs> we, need, we need to have something in our mind that, that we're jumping off of and going, this is what I'm thankful for. This is why I, I worship you. And, and all, as the biblical narrative continues, and we, as we look to Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, who said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul writes of, of the, this of him in Colossians 1.15. He says of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. So, so David never got to see this. But Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. All th- things were created through him and for him, by the way. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is here and now. Christ is holding all of creation together. So very clearly, what the Christian faith proposes is that there is a God who created all things, who continues to sustain them, and in recognizing that the creative God of the universe longs for relationship with his, cre- with his created through his son, Jesus Christ, we find purpose, we find identity, and we find our fullest humanity, and we'll find ourselves bursting like David is when he writes. That is no small claim <laughs> as we sit here and we say, yeah, we believe this. That is no small claim. We have been walking through a, a series over the past few months called Who Needs God. And if you want to go deeper into some of the things I've been talking, I'd suggest uh, some of the books of Tim Keller, um, a a book called A Reason for God, another book called Making Sense of God, which I've been using a lot as I've been preparing some of these messages. But if you want to dig deeper into some of these thoughts, I would encourage you to grab those books. And what we're really doing in this series is we're challenging the notion we're challenging the notion that, that meaning and purpose and, and morality and freedom can be found without God. That, that is the challenge of this series. And that in all of those categories, categories belief in something outside of, of the secular world, of, of a closed world, one that doesn't allow anything, anything in, a worldview that makes room for God actually makes more sense when we talk about live, the way we live and what we believe and how often the way we actually live our lives is very different than what we say we believe. Because we're still living in his created universe, whether we have decided to admit that or not. And one of the reasons that the modern age is continuing to seek spirituality, even though we consider ourselves in a postmodern world, is because there are so many things that the postmodern world just cannot answer. 
And so people are continuing to walk through going, I thought I, thought I was supposed to have everything I wanted. I thought this car was going to answer. I thought this vacation was going to take care of it. I thought this pay raise, this prestige, that this was going to answer it, and none of it's working. So spirituality is on the rise because none of these things are answering the problems that many of us are walking through. The reason that in the midst of our advances, we are the most depressed and anxious culture in the world is because there are fundamental questions that technology and individualism, secularism, and dare I say, politics cannot answer. That's why we're all so angry and trying to figure out what this battle is that's going on inside us. And so far, I've I've posed not that Christianity is so obvious that only a moron would not believe it. It's not what I've said. But instead, that when we compare a worldview that includes the divine as opposed to a secular worldview, it does a better job of explaining our existence. And it encourages a flourishing existence. So as I've said a few times in this series, even if you don't buy it, even if you don't believe the gospel, you should really want it to be true. Even if you don't buy all of what King David said in that psalm, you should really want it, want it to be true because there is more meaning and more purpose and hope found in the gospel than anywhere else. And it answers a fundamental cry of our hearts that nothing else can. And we, we, we heard that this morning already. Belief accounts for, for, for the data that we have in our lives, what we witness and experience in the world. So today, I would like to make kind of my last case for why belief in God makes sense from kind of a different angle. And then next week, I'm going to talk, bring, I'm going to land the plane on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So please make sure you are here next week. And what I want to propose is that many people who say they don't like Jesus, many people who say they don't like the church, they don't like a certain form of Jesus, and they don't like a certain kind of church, and that is not necessarily the Jesus of scripture and that's what we want to lay out next week but what i'd like to lay out hopefully uh now is kind of to speak to our heart and to our mind and whatever other part you use to listen so uh what are some reasons to believe why should we believe i want to pose three questions to you why is there something rather than nothing why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever thought of that? Many of us don't. We're just driving. We're happy. We're eating. We're sleeping. We're all good. But why is there something rather than nothing? Everything that exists has to have a cause. The universe exists. So what caused it? What was that cause? Since the 1920s, the Big Bang has been the theory, the basis for understanding the universe and its, and its behavior. And, and plenty of that behavior is displayed on the show Big Bang, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Big Bang was, was replacing what was called the steady state theory, which basically believed everything has always been there, and it just it kind of just maybe moves around a little bit, but pretty much it's just the same thing. It's always been there, and it's going to continue to go that way. The Big Bang theory theorized that everything had a beginning, not just, not just space, not just matter, but time had a beginning as well, so that the theoretical physicist, cosmologist, Stephen Hawking, ever heard of him, said in 96, almost every, everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. In other words, everything in all of the universe points to an origin. Not that something's been going on forever, but that it points to an origin. There was a, there was a time when time and space did not exist, and then all of a sudden it did. Why? Things that were not cannot create themselves into things. <laughs> they can't, you, things can't create themselves into being, right? There has to be an outside force. 
scientist Francis Collins, reflecting on this idea that there was once nothing and then there was something, he says this. He said, it implies that before that there was nothing, before the Big Bang. I can't imagine how nature, in this case, the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. As Christians, we point to the very, the very text in the Bible, the book of Genesis, which means beginnings. Oh, good. Good. All right. <laughs> Check. Beginnings. There's a hint here in Genesis 1.1. This is not a scientific claim, by the way. It's just saying where things came from. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 to 2, in the beginning was the Word, that's Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, with, was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was there when it all happened. Now, there's some common arguments that are offered uh, to try to throw a wrench in this idea of God being the first cause. Argument against the first cause. Here's two of them. One is that there was no first cause. <laughs> okay. There was. No, there wasn't. Like a he said, she said. Things have just been rolling along for infinity. That's one argument. One is that if everything has a first cause, then what caused God? That's the kind of the big pushback. Now, the first of these, there was no first cause. Uh, that calls on the need for the supernatural to take place. It requires a completely unscientific miracle for all matter and all, all of creation, everything that exists, time and space, to have always been. The proposition is that matter sprang from nothing or always existed without cause and for infinity goes backward never to have a beginning. So you can say, you, you can say that about, about the world, but just don't say that there's any, any person. Don't say that there was any God that's been there forever. That's ridiculous. But matter, that's been there forever. Makes complete sense. That is an extremely unscientific claim. A miraculous claim without a first cause. The second argument, who created God, suggesting that God must stand under the very rules of science he created, is illogical. The God proposed in these arguments is not the God that you and I worship. If we worship the God of the Bible, a God who needed a beginning is, is, no God that we, is not the God we worship. It's definitely not the God of Psalm 8 that, that King David is writing about. Or, the, or the, the God of the, uh, of the Bible in many other areas. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, For thus says the, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. He's not confined. He's not confined by time and space, and his name is holy. 2 Timothy 1, 9, speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He, he was at work before, every, before time and space were created. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So to talk about a God who needs to be caused is not the God of Scripture. This is not a God standing on Olympus, who's just a bigger version of me and my problems. This is the eternal, all-knowing, everlasting God. God as a first cause is a logical explanation of why there is something rather than nothing. Another question we often hear is why, well, this is the way I pose it, why are we somebody rather than nobody? What I mean by that is our world is perfect for life. Our world is, is called the fine-tuning argument. It makes sense that we're here. It's like it was made for us. 
Should we, should we just take it for granted that we can live and breathe and function in our universe? Or are there a handful of things going on that make it possible? And if that, that they were any different, we would not be able to exist as we do. Quoting Collins again, he says this. He says, when you look uh, from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. I love that. There are constants that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Now, Collins came to faith through walking through this logical puzzle and, and bringing in the facts and going, no, there has to be a designer behind this. But there's not only Christians who are making statements like this. Again, Stephen Hawking said, I think there are clearly religious implications for the fine-tuning of the universe. It screams for a mind to be behind it, a designer. Now, could it have all happened by accident? I get, maybe. But is it plausible? No. <laughs> it's not plausible. Some have estimated that the probability of our planet... Listen to this stuff, because it makes my head spin. Some have estimated that the probability of our planet accidentally providing the perfect life-permitting environment as it does is 10 to the negative 100th. There was a one in billions of trillions that by chance it could have produced life on the planet. Now, I read that word for word because when I read things like that, my head blows up. So I had to read it and make sure I read... Exactly, like, I, I have problems with math. When someone says, pass me two pieces of paper. So, so when I read things like this, they become difficult. So here's an illusion, or not an illusion, an illustration. There's an illusion. An illustration to, to kind of make the point for those who aren't so mathematical or scientific. Imagine a man is brought before a firing squad, and he is standing six feet away from 10 sharpshooters. This is their job. They know how to do it. They know where to aim. He, has his, he is blindfolded, and the call is made, fire, and all 10 of them miss from six feet away. Now, could it be an accident? Yes. Is it probable? No. It's more likely that there was some sort of uh, um, collusion going on, that uh, one of them was, was injured, it seems like there was a design or a conspiracy behind it. The fine-tuning evidence in our universe makes sense that there is a creator behind it. It makes an argument for a creator behind it. Now, one of the most recent solutions offered, since the 60s, but really growing, uh, offered by those who oppose the fine-tuning argument, is to propose the multiverse thesis. And some of you are familiar with this, the multiverse thesis. Other scientists who are being a little bit more um, candid not necessarily people of faith, but are basically saying that this, this fine-tuning argument, you can tell it's a really strong argument because never have scientists scrambled so much to come up with another reason why fine-tuning could exist. The multiverse thesis suggests that there are possibly, and they don't like this word except when they talk about science, there's an infinite number of different universes, so it makes sense that out of the infinite amount of universes, that at least one of them would have the fine-tuning that our universe has so that there could be flourishing and life as we know it. MIT professor Alan P. Lightman, he calls this, this grasping at evidence proof of science's crisis of faith. 
that they have to come up with something like this. He says that it's evidence that the fine-tuning argument is extremely strong when scientists put forth the multiverse thesis, even though there's not one shred of evidence for it, or, nor is there any way to test it. That's a, that's a pretty good argument to have. <laughs> is there any way to test it? No. But that's what we're going, that's what we're going with. So that this is basically the argument of, of the multiverse. The way we disprove a benevolent creator when everything we know about our world points to a designer is to imagine that there are a bunch of worlds that don't. <laughs> you follow that? If everything in this universe points to a creator, the only way that we can, we can understand that is if we imagine there are trillions, billions that don't. That's how we prove that the fine-tuning argument is no good. <laughs> but, but ours does point to a designer, but what if trillions don't? Okay, can you show me one of those? No. I'm going with designer. <laughs> that is called faith. And it's a very strong faith. To believe in trillions of universes for which we have not one shred of evidence. So why are we somebody rather than nobody? Why can we live and survive in this universe? King David would, would say, he would point to God that our world was perfectly set up for life. You have made man, humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned us with glory and honor. You've given us dominion over the works of your hands. You've put things under our feet. You, you, you. That is why we were here. That's why this universe makes sense. Because of you, Yahweh, the God who is close, the God who is powerful but who is close and created, uh, fine-tuned this universe as if it was meant for us to show up. Now, that, those are ones for, for the scientists and the big numbers and the 10 to the whatever power. Now for the philosophers and the poets and the artists. And I know we have some in here. Belief also answers another question. Why are things beautiful? Why is there a hunger in us for something that we can't always put a finger on? If all things are by chance, the result of a closed universe unmoved by an ultimate mover, moved forward by chance or, or accidental natural forces, some argue that beauty and longing make no sense in that universe. Is beauty really just a hardwired response to data. Do I find a picture of a tree in front of a mountain? Is it, is it beautiful because it's reaching for something that I can't quite grasp? Or is it beautiful because my ancestors knew that that tree would have good fruit in it and we'd be able to sustain our families? Do I feel love for my wife because there's something on a deeper level going on? Or is it because our ancestors knew that you have to have this emotional feeling so that you could reproduce and move the planet on? What about music and art? What are, what are these feelings we feel when we see a beautiful photo, when we, we, when we stand under, underneath the, the Sistine Chapel and we look up or, or we blast Journey and Duran Duran? Oh. <laughs> My 80s is showing. Or, or Beethoven and Ben Rector. Yeah, okay. And some would say, who cares? They're the feelings. Just because you feel something doesn't make it so. But what if our feelings are a longing for something? A, a pushing for something? As one poet wrote, what if these are blessed longings showing themselves? 
That when we look at, at art or, or listen to music, it's hitting a chord of longing in us. St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending on your background, suggested that these unfulfilled desires are a clue to the reality of God. That's beautiful. For every desire we have, if you think about it, there's always something to satisfy it. For all the desires in our life, there's usually something that's there to fulfill it. You are hungry for steak because there is steak to fulfill it. Or if you eat tofu, there's steak-flavored tofu <laughs> to be eaten. Stop taking our flavors, by the way. I'm just saying. We have thirst because there are drinks to satisfy our thirst. There's, there's a desire to, to correspond. There, our desires correspond to, to real-life Desires. There's sexual desire that can be satisfied for a moment by sex. There's, there's hunger that can be satisfied by food. We know that being tired can be satisfied by sleep. Some of us never get there, but it's there. There are relational desires that are met by friendships. And the Christian would argue that the longing that grows in us when, when we witness beauty or, or, or cry at a, at a beautiful song is the result of an unfulfilled longing for joy and love and beauty and hope that no amount of food, no amount of money, no amount of sex, no amount of friendship or success can ever fully satisfy. Why is there something beyond all of those things? Is it the longing? There's, there's, it's spoken of in, in Jesus, Joy of Man's Desiring, in the last stanza. It says, there is, a beauty's, there is beauty's fairest pleasure. Theirs is wisdom's holiest treasure. He's speaking to coming to Christ. Thou dost ever lead thine own in the love of joys unknown. You satisfy those that we cannot find anywhere else. And we can run around forever, but they are found in you. There is a hunger and a thirst that only Jesus satisfies. Jesus hits on this point when he, when he speaks to crowds in Galilee in John 6. 35, he said to them, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in Jerusalem, a little while later, while everyone's trying to find satisfaction, and satisfaction, religious, religious ritual, and an inner longing for something beyond themselves, he says to them, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, all those desires in you, those, those longings for more than what you can accumulate or experience, they're found in me. What does that mean for us this morning? What have, you been, what have we been running after all week? Where have we been trying to find identity and hope and joy and satisfy our deepest desires? Are we dealing with all the stuff up here or are we allowing Jesus to get to the very core. Jesus says, all those desires, those longings, they're found in me. But the argument goes, nothing we believe about God or beauty or feelings can be trusted because it's just simply a part of our genetic makeup. We needed them to help us not be scared at night. We needed to, to come up with those. We believe them because we, we have no choice. That's how we're programmed. Well, that's a problem for the person who makes that argument as well because the way they're reasoning is also part of their genetic makeup, so why should we believe what they just said? If what our brains tell us about love and morality and beauty are not real, just chemical reactions meant to pass on a genetic code, then, then isn't what their brain is telling them just a result of the same chemical reactions? Can any of us be believed? 
Tim Keller points out that the argument for evolutionary biology as, as, as the, the only reason behind beliefs about beauty and love and morality may prove more than their proponents would like it to prove. If we can't trust these beliefs and convictions, we can't believe any beliefs or convictions. But if we believe in the God who loves, who loves to create, who made us to relate and, and long for him, who, who at one point called creation into being, who, who is a rational being, created a rational universe that actually makes the practice of science possible, by the way, then the Big Bang Theory, the, the idea of time and space starting at one point, that makes complete sense. The, the fine-tuning universe that, that you and I find ourselves in, that makes complete sense when we think that there is a benevolent, loving God. The fact that, that we can trust our faculties, which all scientists and all theologians do in order to make any claim for reason, that makes sense in the view of the world where there is a God. The longing, of, the longing of, of, for meaning that we feel when we see beautiful art or, or, or blast some beautiful music, those, those feelings, those longings, they, they make sense. But these things don't make sense in a closed universe. Without God, you have no reason to trust your reasoning. But we all live as though we do. We all live with morality. We all live with a search for freedom. Those make sense in a God-ordained universe. If we don't have God, we, we have no reason to trust that, that love and beauty matter, but we all live as though they do. The cry of the psalmist makes sense of our experience. To look at creation and go, wow, the works of your hands. Who am I that you care? And then God cries back with the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, but I care. Oh, but I love my creation. Oh, but I love my creation. We look at creation, we see order, we look at creation and the, and the beauty, and even the cross, we look at it and we see its vulgarity and we see its beauty, and it strikes a chord in us. And it answers something in us about justice and acceptance that nothing else can. And the invitation is that of King David to respond in humility and awe to the God who created all things, who knows all things, who sustains all things and stepped into time and space that he created and invited you and I into relationship with him. That is the reason to worship and to live and find purpose and hope. O oh Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are... You are the God who cares for us. Even when we don't give you a thought, why do you care for us? Why do you give us a thought? But you do so much more than that. Who are, who are we that you would fine-tune the universe for us, but you do so much more than that? Jesus, who are we that you would die for us? That you would look down upon us and leave your throne and give your life for us. God, teach us more what it means to reflect on your creation and respond to your might and your love for us. Give us a strong foundation of understanding in our hearts and our minds as we seek to love you with our heart and our minds and pursue you with our hearts and our minds. That a worldview that sees a, a God in charge, 
a God who is not way off, but a God who steps into his own creation. It makes sense of our experience. It's the only thing that satisfies our longings. And so this morning, as we've come to you and we've given you worship, and we're going to continue to do so through communion, it is our prayer that, that we would not just offer you this time, but in response to the, the beauty of your creation and all that you've done, that we would respond with our whole lives. And as we leave this place this morning, your, your presence would be very evident in our lives as we step into conversations in living rooms, in schools, and in workplaces. So we offer you ourselves afresh this morning because you are a God who is near. You are a God who is mighty, and we want to glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Um, guys, we're going to go into a time of communion. And just a little bit of explanation behind communion for those of you who are new. I love doing communion. And the reason I love doing it, we love doing communion, is because it's impossible to have communion and not hear the gospel. And the last thing we would ever want is for someone to come to church and leave and not hear the gospel. When we take bread and we take the cup, we are doing a form of worship that Jesus himself gave his disciples. He said, whenever you meet together to eat, I want you to, when you eat the bread, I want you to be reminded that my, my body was the bread of life that was, that was given up for you, to sustain you for now and through to eternity. So when I went to the cross, when I go to the cross and I give my life for you, I want you to remember the sacrifice that I paid for your sin. When you take the cup, I want you to remember that I spilled my blood as a payment for your sin. And we need to be careful that our response is not always heads down and shame, shame, shame. The whole point of the cross is to surgically remove the shame and guilt from us because we are also invited in light of the cross to come with great confidence before the throne of God. So we, we thank Jesus for this free gift, but it didn't come cheap. So that's what we remember when we take communion. If you are a Christ follower, if you've come to the point in your life where, you, where, where you're convinced of, of, of the, the truth of the gospel, that, that Jesus came, he took on flesh, he lived and died to pay the punishment for our sins, if, and, and in response to that, we've accepted the forgiveness he offers, and it is our goal to live our lives for him. If that is you, and you invited him to, to be Lord of your life, then you're welcome to take part in communion this morning. And how we do it here is we're going to have two stations. I'll invite those who are going to be serving this morning. We're going to have two stations, and how we do it here, there's a bit of confusion last time because I didn't give good instructions, um, is that we come down and we tear the bread off, off the loaf, and then we dip it in the cup, and we eat on the spot before we, we step back. Now, how, how I'm going to do this is uh, I'm going to ask those. We're going to come down your left and make your way back up on the right. I'm going to ask those who are in the very top balcony within the first 30 seconds to a minute if you are going to be taking communion to make your way down so that we don't clog everybody up there. And guys, let's just be patient with each other as we make our way out to take communion together. God of grace, we thank you for all that the worship of uh, worshiping through communion represents. We thank you that as we, we take communion, we look back and we see, Jesus, what you did for us. But Jesus, you also told us that we're going to eat this meal until you return and eat it with us. So we are able to look forward with hope because we know that this story is going somewhere and you are coming back. But Jesus, you also mentioned at your ascension that you are with us till the end of the age. 
And so that as we take communion this morning, we are reminded that you are not a God who is far off, but you are Lord Yahweh in our presence at this moment. And we pray, Father, I pray for those who, who are wandering through darkness, walking through shame, walking through guilt, that you would meet them here this morning. And because of your sacrifice, you would remove that shame, remove that guilt from their lives. God, for any of us who come in this morning and we come in proud, I pray you would humble us in light of the cross. And we would meet together on very even ground as we worship through song and we worship through taking communion this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.